This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY-Giving. Turn with me, please, to the book of Philippians. It's where we left off last week. Now, we're in the midst of, well, in the midst of, we've barely just begun it. I think we're only two studies in. This is our third one. We're in a new series of studies called Letters to Young Churches. And it's all about the letters of the apostles to the various churches and individuals that comprise uh, the overwhelming majority of the New Testament. So if you, I'm sure you know this already, but the New Testament is made up of four gospel accounts, one historical account tacked on to that, which is the book of Acts, which we almost started tonight. That may be on deck for next week. We will see. Um, and then after that begins with the book of Romans all the way through uh, the end of Jude, I believe, a series of letters written by the various apostles, five of the apostles that have been preserved and recorded to the various churches throughout Asia Minor, Southern Europe, the Middle East, different places where there were different issues that were going on and different reasons for each letter. This letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi is one of the most positive of them, very upbeat, very encouraging. There's lots of good stuff in here as far as encouragement, for the believer, encouragement, blessing, encouragement. I don't even know the other word to use other than just encouragement again. There's a lot of it. And we've already encountered some here in chapter one, particularly where he, uh, where he says in the first couple of paragraphs, where he says that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful. He will continue it into the day of Jesus Christ. And so that's a promise that you'll want to recall to your mind again and again as you live for God, as we live for Christ and as we, we let Him abide in us and as we abide in Him, especially throughout what we, what we call as the sanctification process, okay? Now salvation, we've said, I think two weeks ago we brought this out, salvation is the miracle of a moment. It happens in an instant. It's an event. It's when a sinner is changed into a saint. But that doesn't mean that everything is instantly ironed out in our lives and that suddenly we are completely perfect and that there's nothing more that God needs to do in us. And I think we even said, if you're at that place in your life, then I need to talk to you. I've got some, I've got some learning to do and you've got some splaining to do. And, uh, and we can all go forward from there. But from the moment we're born again, He begins to work in us making us more and more in the image of Christ. Well, that sounds like he's trying to change my personality. Well, in some cases, yes. It's not really, I mean, that sounds a little bit more drastic, I think, than what I'm aiming for, but our personalities weren't always great, were they? You know, maybe you were, I mean, maybe you were an angel. Maybe you were a saint right from your mother's womb and you never did anything wrong, but, you know, but maybe some of us were just, horrible, mean, nasty, bitter, vengeful, spiteful people in our sinning days, in our old lives. Maybe we, were, uh, maybe we were philanderers. Maybe we were womanizers. Maybe we were just pathological liars. Maybe we were just full of darkness and hate and greed and all of the things that comprise the wickedness of this world. And so while 
Christ comes in at salvation and washes away all of our sins. All of our sins, the Bible says, sins that are past. Washes all of those away and then gives us a new heart that begins to hunger after the things of God and begins to desire things that are actually good and righteous in our life. It's a lifelong process of working out the things that are not like Christ and developing and growing within us the things that are like Christ. Some of it is miraculous. The grace of God and an instant change on some things. Some things not so quick, not so easy. Take some reinforcement and some constant uh, bolstering up and bracing of good things from the Word of God. Some things take effort on our part. Some things take none, but they're entirely by the grace of God. And it's different with different believers as far as you know, one brother, one brother or sister may seem like they're having an easy time cruising along down the road of Christianity, but you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know how much praying has to be done right at the moment they come through the door after the day job is over with or, or while they're in the midst of doing what if they're a full-time homemaker or something like that in the midst of their work at home or whatever it is that they're doing. You don't know what goes on in, in the personal lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more peripherally about that here as we get near the end of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2. It's a process, not salvation, but sanctification as we continue to let God have His way in us. So you see your brother or sister that isn't bang on as awesome spiritual as you? <clears throat> Don't judge. Pray. Pray for them. Now, you see him rob a bank or something or explode in some outrageous fit of temper. Well, you might judge in your mind, that's not of God. But pray for them. Pray for them. Uphold one another as the family and the community that we are supposed to be in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so let's jump right into it. Now, fifth paragraph is where we ended last week, so we'll, we'll pick up there for our context. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. These are the words of Paul writing to the church in Philippi. And some also of good will. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, he asks, it's a question there. Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice and will rejoice. And then let's lead right into the next paragraph. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. This is Paul's customary verbosity. And I'm not saying that with any criticism. Lots of words to communicate a simple message. He says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. You have to remember, and we talked about this last week, Paul was in bonds at this time. He was in prison. 
either, I don't remember if it was an actual jail or if it was house arrest at the time that he penned this particular letter, but he was not a free man. Yet, in his condition of imprisonment, he was still useful to the cause of Christ. His circumstances did not hold him back. They didn't stop him in his tracks. He used what he had, and there's a lesson in that for every single one of us. Say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. Well, that's not really what's important. None of us is Paul. Paul was Paul, and none of us is called to be Paul. You're called to be you, yet in the image of Christ, without sin, filled with all fruits of righteousness, filled with righteousness, filled with the Spirit of God, and so forth. Paul did not let his circumstances uh, grind his work for the Lord to a halt. He did what he could where he was with what he had. And what he had was substantial. I'm not talking about necessarily money or resources or a massive advertising budget or something like that. What Paul had was the Holy Ghost. And he had such a profound knowledge and understanding of the Word of God that jailers were getting saved when the man was in prison. Some of the staff uh, in, uh, I want to say, in was it Caesar's house? Were actually being born again. Why? Because he dared talk. He dared speak up and communicate about Jesus Christ. All of this working together, all of it working together for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of it working for the salvation of souls. So he said, according to my earnest, let's go back to verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what he's getting at here in the core of this particular paragraph that begins in verse 19. Whether I live or whether I die, it's going to be as unto God and God is going to be glorified by it. And so if it's life that God has planned for me and that is according to His ordained will, then I'm going to live that life to the glory of Almighty God. I want Him to be glorified. I will not be ashamed. I want to speak out in all boldness, communicate in boldness, act in boldness. It doesn't mean arrogance. Now I know boldness, that's... Oh, don't go there. Don't talk about boldness. That's toxic masculinity, don't you know? There's some toxic femininity out there too. There's toxicity on both sides of that fence. Boldness just refers to confidence. And when your confidence is in God and your confidence is in what He does, what He's done in you and is continuing to do in you according to the first, that first promise that we brought out two weeks ago uh, that He who has begun a good work in you will continue it. When your confidence is, is in God, then you can be bold like the Apostle Paul was also. Why be ashamed? Well, why would a Christian be brought to shame? That's a question worth bringing up here. Because Paul brings it up, so it's worth some exploration. And that's what Bible study is all about, is learning and exploring what he's talking about, and the significance that it has in our lives, what he means, what he's saying. Why would a Christian be ashamed? Well, if he's not really solidly rooted and grounded in Christ and he's still 
He still craves the acceptance of the world. People that were once friends and peers and all of that still trying to get their affirmation and their adulation and their acceptance and all of that. One of the most miserable people you'll ever meet in this life is a Christian who's still trying to be accepted by the world. Because one, if they do accept you, well, how does that even work out? You're of a different spirit than them. So they're not going to accept you uh, until or unless you're of the same spirit again, which means you've got to turn your back on God and walk back into the old life again. And then a lot of times you still don't have their acceptance or their adulation or their affirmation or anything like that because they'll look at you like a quitter. Who hears? Is anyone here read Pilgrim's Progress? What was that character's name? Pliable? He started off with Christian with all the stories of the celestial city and the promise of the kingdom and all of that. And, and he was enchanted by all of that. But then the moment they ran into some trials and some difficulties in the slew of despond, he's like, ah, forget it. Just like some angry six-year-old takes his bat and ball and goes home. And then all of his friends derided him saying, well, you know, if you started out, you ought to have at least seen it through to the end. Man, what kind of a wimp are you? It wasn't quite how they expressed it. They derided him. And so... Let us not be in a place where we should be ashamed. The only other place where the Christian would be ashamed is if they're still ensnared in sins. So I'm a believer, but I keep getting overcome by this one or these five sins or whatever they are. They keep overcoming me again and again and again. Well, then of course you don't have any boldness when speaking about God. How can you tell anybody about the delivering power of God when you yourself are still needing deliverance from something? So how do I get and keep genuine, let's just call it apostolic because Paul was an apostle, okay? How do I get and keep that genuine Christian boldness like Paul had? Well, keep yourself clean. Spiritually speaking, of course. You can go a day or two without a shower if you want. Stop doing the things that cause you shame. And that's you. A lot of times, that's exactly what brings the Christian to shame. You make it an absolute in your life. Don't do the things that bring you to shame. And then, as Paul says here in verse 20, in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. And even that phrase there, magnified in my body, is worthy of some deeper exploration. There are people that do some terrible things to themselves physically. They disfigure themselves uh, physically. They do things. They permanently mar themselves physically, not understanding that the hand of the devil is behind every single bit of that. Whether it's he's provoking the pride aspect of it, or he's provoking vanity, or he's provoking something that's just blasphemous and trying to mar the image of God that every single one of us is made in, male and female alike. We are made in His image. Male and female made He them. In the image of God made He them. And so people mar themselves. Well, what should I do then? As a Christian, I'm really zealous. I'm brand new in the faith. Tell me something, Pastor. Can I go get, should I go get a tattoo across my forehead that says, Jesus saves? Well, the message, is, the message is right on. But that medium is really kind of missing the mark. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't really go in for that in the body of Christ because 
He didn't make you. He didn't make your body to be a canvas. Okay? He made your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know? And if you have to have a tattoo on your forehead that says, I'm a Christian, something's lacking. People should be able to tell by the lives that we live. They should be able to tell by the lives that we live. And so that's something to think about in every part of your life. You mean God is supposed to be glorified and Christ is supposed to be magnified even in my physical body? I've been told by every church I ever went to that the outward appearance doesn't matter. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. What we do on the outside reflects what's going on on the inside. And so it's just something to consider. We'll get into greater detail on that when the time is right. Let's move on. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He had absolutely no fear of death whatsoever. None. And this was at a time when people were facing that. In fact, Paul himself had consented to the death of Christians, the martyrdom of Christians, standing there observing as a witness the martyrdom of Stephen. Reverend Ryder preached on that on Sunday night, a standing ovation. He was saying that to die is gain. He had no fear of it because he knew that death of our physical body, and he says elsewhere in Scriptures, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So why fear death? Why? Fear of the grave is for the unbeliever who has no realistic hope beyond this life. Let them be afraid of dying. Let them be afraid of the hereafter. Let them be the ones that, uh, that, lie their head, that lay their heads down at night uh, with, that, with that nagging uncertainty that they scarcely dare to explore because they've been taught not to uh, by the multitude of distractions that are inflating their lives and consuming their time, okay? Let them be consumed with that. Not you. Not you. If you've been born again, if you're a genuine believer and a disciple of our Lord Jesus, if that's you, have no fear of that. Because for you to live, well, that's Christ. That's Christ in you, your hope of glory. And for you to die, that's your ticket home. You're done. There is no more work to do. Once, you, once your spirit leaves your body, once you have departed from this life, unfinished business is all finished. Let someone else clean up the mess. Let someone else pick up the loose ends. And I'm not trying to sound callous or anything like that. Okay, for the survivors, that can be quite a traumatic experience, of course. But for you, you don't have to worry about it. You're done. The next thing you hear, probably if we go off of Scripture, is well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Come on in. What gets us to come on in is the blood of Christ on our life. Now, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. It means I know not. I don't know which path I'm going to choose. It doesn't mean the path between sin and, uh, sin and salvation. He's not talking about that. Let's read on. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, everything that he had just been discussing, boldness in Christ, an expectation of his hope, not being ashamed, and so on, and Christ being magnified in his body. He says, yet what I shall choose, 
I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two. I'm in a narrow place between two things, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Verses 23-24 show us the selflessness of the apostle. He would have loved at this point in his life and in his ministry to have hung it all up and gone home to be with Jesus. I believe it was David, the psalmist, certainly one of the psalmists. I want to say that it was David uh, who said that in so many words said, in the grave, how can I praise you? What praise is there in there? How can I worship you? How can I bless your name? How can I praise you in the grave? If I'm dead, how can I sing the songs of praise for you, O God? And so life is good. It is not to be hated. That's unpopular among some believers that just want to burn everything to the ground and usher in the eternal perfect state. But all of that's in God's judgment and in God's due time. And we trust in all of that, okay? In the meantime, we're here alive on the earth right now. What are we going to do? Are we going to let Christ be magnified in our body and magnified in our life, magnified in our speech, magnified in our communication with one another? Are we going to let God be glorified in all that we do and in all that we are? Are we going to let our entire lives be a worship to Almighty God? Our work, our leisure, our families, everything that we do. We're here for a reason. If we weren't, then the moment we were born again, God should have just taken us up from the earth. That's it. Rapture you right then and there. Just have done with this wicked, sinful, evil world. Well, yes, it's wicked and evil and sinful. But there are a whole lot of souls that are living in it that need Jesus Christ. They need Him. They need the Holy Ghost. They need salvation. They need, they need what God offers. And it's not just that. He has a plan for every single one of them. And that's so, that's so cliched. I understand it's been beat to death by so many pulpits, but it's no less true for it. There's a plan for every single one of us within the kingdom. And we can never begin to realize that until one, we're born again. And two, we are resolved or resigned or both, either one, to live our life on the earth to the glory of God. Let's redeem this time, man. And I know that a lot of us, our 20s are lost to varying degrees of foolishness. And then our 30s, uh, we start getting a few things on track. And then our 40s, things get better and better. And that's just part of growing up. But however old or however young that a person may be, like Paul, he's not a young man when he wrote this letter, not by any stretch. Andy was in prison, so he was getting older. His strength was probably flagging because that's what happens when you get older. You might only be 46 or 56, but you're not 26 anymore, right? Unless you're 26. And he was imprisoned. And so all of these things that would have slowed other people down or might have even stopped them in their tracks become their excuse to just hang it up and just not do anything. It wasn't an excuse for him. He pressed on, seeking to magnify God, seeking to magnify Christ in his life, in his body, whether it was by life or whether it was by death. And so he says in verse 24, verse 23, he said, I'm in a straight, I'm in a straight betwixt two. I'm in this narrow place between two different options. Having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. That's option number one. 
Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. This was his selflessness. His selflessness was, I can't leave yet. There's work to be done. I can't hang it up yet. These churches are in need. And there are... and. So, well, that's all he did was he just ministered to churches. No, he was a soul winner. That's why you read in some of his other letters and those of Caesar's household salute you. It wasn't just because they were the prison guards that were nice to him. There were people he was reaching for Christ. And so it didn't matter that he was an apostle. It didn't matter that he had um, that he had pioneered churches and that he had ministered to even to churches that he had not pioneered. It didn't matter that in the hierarchy of the ministry, so to speak, he could have been regarded and was regarded as pretty high up there. He was still sleeves rolled up, working in the trenches, reaching out to people that were lost in their sins. He was never too good to talk to an unbeliever and say, there's salvation that you can have. There's hope for you in Jesus Christ. And so he expresses that to stick around is what was more needful. And going on, verse 25, he says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and your joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. What was he talking about there? He wasn't talking about... Um, well, let's let's use some language that he didn't use here, okay? Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your misery and uh, continued self-hatred and condemnation. That your misery may be the more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Well, that's laughable, of course, that's absurd, but there are a lot of believers that live that way. Their Christian life is nothing but one in their perception is, is nothing but one trial or grind after another, and there's no rejoicing in them. There's no, there's no um, he uses joy and rejoicing. There's, there's no happiness, there's no joy, there's no faith, there's no rejoicing. There is no celebration of their life in Christ, and that is a real poverty. That's a real poverty. That's not the kind of poverty, if there's any kind of poverty. That's, there's, that's not the kind of poverty that, pre that pleases our Lord. He talks about joy and rejoicing and talks about it being abundant in Jesus Christ. If you're one of those gloomy Christians, if you're one of those, find your joy. Why the gloom? Why the unhappiness? First of all, it's a terrible testimony to the unbeliever. Yeah, this guy, I know... Uh, he used to be happy all the time. He's always cutting it up. He was partying. He was doing all this stuff. He was just a great guy to be around. Ever since he started going to that church, he's just been a miserable, sad sack. Boy, I want to go to that church and get his God. Why don't we take that guilt-based Christianity and throw it in the trash can where it belongs? Light it on fire. Really, take that... Take that misconception of what the Christian life, some people think it's supposed to be about, and get rid of it. And embrace the Philippian version, which is the right version, by the way, okay? Embrace the Philippi or the, the Apostle Paul in his communication here to the church at Philippi, embrace their brand of Christianity, which is filled with rejoicing and with joy and with confidence and with boldness. 
That's how we can be every single day of our life. But we can't be that way if we're constantly under a gloomy cloud of guilt with lightning and thunder and all of that along with it. If we're constantly under condemnation because we're doing things that bring us under condemnation. That's an exhausting way to live. That's like Christians that are always sitting on the fence whether or not they're actually going to live for God. And I only call them Christians in the loosest sense because when you're divided like that, are you even, a stand, are you even really a believer? Are you, re, are you really, really even standing on the promises of God? Let's embrace this take on it. Because so much of the letters of the apostles speak of um, us having our joy and our fullness of of joy and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. And why shouldn't we? But in order to have that, you got to stay clean, don't you? You got to stay clean. So stay clean, and then your prayers can be something other than, Father, forgive me. You know, your prayers can be something other than prayers for forgiveness. Your prayers can be for something other than, uh, I'm a, such a miserable, horrible wretch. It's like, okay, well, that's a defeated life. And Jesus died so that we could have a not a defeated life. So that we could have a life that actually had victory in it. I'm not saying that if you ever have a bad day or you do something that's stupid or even a sin, that it's all over for you. We've talked about that before. What does the believer do when they find themselves in a place where they have offended God, where they have violated a tenant of His Word, where they've done something that they shouldn't have done, where they sin. So, well, are they still a Christian anymore? Remember, the answer to that is, that's the wrong question. The answer to that is, what does the Christian do? The Christian takes it to God, makes it right. And then, as you keep it right, here's the thing, as you keep it right, your joy becomes greater. You have joy right off the bat because there's forgiveness and there's goodness and all of that. But as you keep things right, you make fewer bad calls. You do fewer things wrong. And the more you learn and the more, uh, from the, especially from the letters of the apostles, the more you shape your life after, after the Word of God, the whole Word of God, not just the New Testament, but it's the New Testament that pertains most poignantly to us. As you shape your life by it, let it shape your life. The greater your joy, the greater your confidence, because you know that everything's right between you and God. And then when you lay your head down at night, it's no longer in doubt. It's no longer in uncertainty. It's you're laying your head down at night at night knowing, I have pleased the Lord this day, and I don't owe anyone an apology for it. Boldness confidence, joy, rejoicing. Make sure that that's your kind of Christianity. Let me throw one more thing in there, okay? Because those can be faked. Holiness. When holiness of heart, which is what all holiness stems from, when holiness is there, then all these other things can be there too. All these other things can be there too, so... Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. 
If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.